Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narratives shaping the industry. I'm Rich Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G Gall, and I'm joined by my co-host Jennifer Riggins as always. You can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins. We're really excited to share today's episode as it's a very special one. It's our first with two guests and more importantly two very special guests who have been extremely influential in the industry. Anyone working in APIs will likely know them, and if you don't, you're in for a very special treat as they've got so many great insights and perspectives on the tech industry and the role that stories play in it. They are Lorinda Brandon and Mike Amundsen. So in our conversation, we talked about the evolution of the tech industry and how issues of equality and accessibility have changed. So it's particularly interesting to hear Lorinda talk about gender equality in tech since the 80s. We think you'll enjoy that. And we also talked about their work in setting the foundations for making APIs not only a massive part of the software development world, but also for kind of the wider business world and the economy as we know it as a whole, I guess. So we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together. We sure you'll learn something first off. Let's meet Lorinda and Mike. Thanks, guys, for joining us. We're glad to be here. So, um, yeah, like I said, the the best place to start is for you to to yeah just introduce who you are and what you're doing at the moment. So, I'm Lorinda Brandon. I'm the VP of Engineering at Better Cloud, and I have been in tech for I'm going to say it out loud 38 years. I have been in tech, so been around the block a few times. How long I've been alive? Almost. No, 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 lady. That's, we're not doing that. <laughs> no, this is, no, this is great. I started no in tech way. when I was eight. There you <laughs> that go. That's awesome. No, but that's great. That's something to be proud of your experience. Not shy about that. Yeah, no, I am proud of it. I, as a woman in tech, I feel like I'm definitely a unicorn having survived this long in this industry. So proud of that. Yeah, cool. My name is uh, Mike Amundsen. I'm basically an author and uh, a little bit of training, and I do a lot of advising for startups in the API space. So I, I kind of brand myself as, a, as an API advisor, API strategist. And I too have been around the block a few times. I actually was doing some research for another project. I started writing about tech, about my experience in programming in uh, the first evidence that still exists is around 1988 which is really sad but that's that I feel in some ways I feel sort of the same same as Lorinda in the sense that I'm still around I've survived all this time and I'm still having fun so I'm I'm, I'm very lucky and I'm very happy to be here today cool and um, um, before we get into the questions it might be good just to let people listening know um, how you guys know each other how far you go back and that sort of thing I don't remember how, when, yeah. or how we met, but we we have um, traveled the world together. We were both on the conference circuit, which yep. we must have met at some conference at some point. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I can't pinpoint the first time we shared a stage or we were at the same event, but I distinctly remember uh, the very the very first time that I can recall you really had a, a huge impact on me and what you're talking about was at a rest fest. You uh, you had some fantastic feedback. This is so for listeners. Restfest was this event where everybody. The line was everybody talks and everyone listens. It was a very small group, thirty some, thirty five some odd people that spend a weekend in uh, in the Carolinas, and we just talk about tech. And I remember that's when you really made an impression on me. 
And we'd probably met before that, but I don't know if you remember much about that event, but that was really the, the time I that do. I recall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. So that it was an interesting, was I the only woman? I think Shelby was there too. So I think there were two yeah. of us and um, there was some ongoing conversations about women in tech and misogyny in tech and yeah. this push for women to or little girls really to embrace STEM. And I had done a talk at Glue about this very thing, about all the mixed messages we have, where we tell everybody, oh, the tech industry is misogynist and it's, you know, tech bros and it's like all this stuff. Women, you really should join tech. We need more women in tech. And it's like this <laughs> sort of mixed message of it sucks here, but you should all come. Like, And so I was telling Mike about that talk on a break because it was just relevant to some of the side conversations that were going on. And, and he was like, you know, you should just do that talk here now. And uh, so I, I dug around in my random slide decks to try to find it and and kind of walked everybody through it so yeah I remember that I wonder if part of it is your niche of tech because I I said to Rich that honestly seven eight years ago when I started going to API days events or what is time I don't know how many years really Sometimes you were, Lorinda, the only other female there or the only other female that was speaking or moderating or whatever. And I don't know how much has changed. Do you think that much has changed or not? Or especially in the last few years? So I don't think it's changed. I think it's gotten worse, if anything. I think, so when we say tech, it is, like you said, there are niches of tech. I used to go to a lot of testing conferences, and that has a fair number of women, because that is a part of tech that has a higher percentage of females who are drawn to it. Engineering in particular, you know, coding events. Yeah. I have been, so my first API craft, I was the only woman. And so, yeah, definitely have been one or one of five at some of these conferences. And it's, it can be, it can be awkward. You know, like I can remember, I bless their hearts at API craft. The first time I went, I was the only woman and they were so excited that a woman was coming and they got me my own t-shirt. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. They got one. I went up to the, you know how you register at conferences. I went up to the table and I was like, here I am. And they had piles of male t-shirts. <laughs> T-shirts and they had one V-neck women's T-shirt off to the side. And when I came up and they knew who I was, they were like, "Oh, Lorenda's here. Here's your T-shirt." And so, um, yeah. So, so it was. It wasn't like identified differently. It was just they they had an actual women's cut T-shirt. They finally they had, had an it. actual women's cut T-shirt. You didn't have they to had, wear a men's they had special small or ordered yeah. a female. Yeah. A women's t-shirt, which I thought was so sweet. Oh, yeah. was, but it's also like there's this incredible pressure on you as a <laughs> female in tech and as the only woman in the, you know, in the conference because like, oh, yes, a woman's here. I hope you're having fun, Lorinda. How's the food, Lorinda? How's the, you know, it's like, I'm just we, like everybody else. I just want to be here. Yeah, we, we talked about this for, I, I'll, I'll go back to the RestFest thing because it's there's a connection for Lorinda and I. But one of the challenges at RestFest was, we didn't recruit speakers. We didn't. Uh, we didn't have a an agenda or a curation. We just said, "Show up, and you'll get to speak." So it was a bit of an unconference in the sense that the event you had had to do with the event, the people that showed up. But the the starting problem is right out of the gate. 
the two people who are organizing the event are two white men, right? So the challenge is, what is our what is our connection pool? What is our network of people? And what we learned super early on was that my network of people at that time was decidedly monoculture, right? So for so many reasons. So we we had a challenge right from the very beginning, and then. You sort of get this awareness. I think, Lorinda, you might have even helped us in the beginning. We were trying to do these elements that said, well, let's have scholarships for unrepresented or scholarships for women or scholarships for students or something like that in the attempt of of trying to do some artificial selection process. What we learned in, in, in all of that is what you really need to do is change your tone, change your culture, change your community, even the way we talked about the event in order to widen our community. So I think I'm really interested in, in Lorinda's point of view on what's changed or not changed. And I know it may or may not be better or worse, but has it changed in any way? I sort of recognize phases where we're sort of blissfully ignorant uh, we're ignorant of the abuse. We're ignorant of the, of the things that we don't see. Then suddenly we see them and then there are these sort of Herculean efforts or these performative activities to try to change what we see. But those things don't always last. So I wonder if you're, have you seen any kind of cycle or pattern of attempt or is it really all just been when it really washes out, just been about the same? What do you think, Lorinda? So it depends on what you when what time frame you're talking about. Remember, I've been uh, doing this for a long time, but I think when you and I started in this industry, I know this, like there's data around this, but this is also my memory. I started in the 80s, like you, and it was pretty even. We were all yep. the, the software industry was pretty young and we didn't nobody knew what the hell we were doing. Yep. And we all wore a million hats because we hadn't refined the sausage making really very much. And we also were building software differently. Like we built software with the intent for it to live forever. Like we yep. it wasn't ephemeral the way it is now, where you assume the microservice that you're making today is going to be gone in a year or two years. And so it was a different, it was a whole other world. And, but it was, I remember it being, you know, almost half and half females and males. Like we didn't even think about it. It wasn't a conversation. There was no women in tech thing. There was no, there was none of that. Like we were just a bunch of people trying to figure out how to make software. And I didn't even really notice. I was so busy just doing the work that I didn't really even notice that the numbers were declining until it got to the point where you are the only woman in the room. And, or sometimes like, because I've worked a lot of startups, you're the only woman at the startup. And I worked at one startup where they had rented this really cheap little space. They had a men's room. They didn't have a women's room. I had to go to the company next door to use the women's room. And, and so, so when you say, has it changed? Well, God, yeah, it's changed a lot. And I think it puts undue pressure on those of us, especially women leaders in tech. It puts undue pressure on us. We can't just go in and do our job the way men do. We also have to be mentors and we also have to speak at all the various events around town. And we also have to speak at conferences, you know, this whole concept of conferences, which I know is coming from a good place, but there's a lot of this, you know, 50, 50 speakers. We need to have 50% women speakers. Well, there aren't 50% women in the industry. And so those of us who are in leadership positions in tech get an undue amount of pressure to be visible and vocal and inspirational and whatever it is that you all expect of us, but we're really just trying to do the same work that the guy next to us is trying to do. And 
it's hard because we're pulled in so many directions. So I think to me, that's the biggest difference from when I started where I was just on equal footing and we just did, we're doing our work and we're trying to get stuff done. And we were just a bunch of people. Now we're women and men, or, you know, however you identify, like we've segmented so many ways and, and there's pressure no matter which group you're in to perform in some way. So I don't know, I'm just I I kind of, so just to circle this around, I sort of did that to you just now, didn't I? Lorinda, do you think it's changed, right? I put, I I put that right on you, didn't I? (laughs) You did. You know, I'm the only, I'm the only person here for you to talk to. So like, that's (laughs) okay. I can talk to Jennifer, I can talk to Richard. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, The, the, but the, uh, you know, going back to, you know, us olds kind of story, the people who taught me programming, for the most part, as I'm going back, I took night classes to learn IBM Assembler and COBOL and stuff like this. Most of the people who taught me, most of the professors who taught me were women, you know, in the 80s, because that was that was so common. Um, right. When I was learning all the stuff I learned about, you mentioned testing, all the stuff I learned about testing and design and all that. When I was thinking back in those days, yeah, there's, I mean, it seemed to be a much more integrated in, 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 in that sense uh, world. But I have to say, I'm super guilty of not paying attention, right? So as things changed into the into the you know home computer area and the gaming area and then the startup area, all these other things, I didn't really pay attention around me. And that is something that I really have to say that boy, I really notice now. Like I wasn't paying attention. So I don't know. I you know, I'm gonna turn this around. Jennifer, you interview a lot of people. You see another side of tech, right? Uh, what's what's it like for you just in the time that you've been? Well, the interview I keep thinking of, ironically, is Mary Poppendick, who ah. was talking six decades of tech. Yeah. She said that she's not someone that likes to, it seems, likes to talk as a woman in tech that much because half of her life in tech was, as Lorinda described, the 50-50. Because yeah. that's something that maybe in the late 80s, early 90s is when that switched. So yeah. for her... She thinks it may be a choice because tech got less interesting to be involved in in engineering and it was, it became too code monkey and less problem solving or something. So I thought that was very uh, interesting. But she's also said, like, thankfully, Hollywood has given us one film. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a Grace Hopper movie at some point. I would love uh, to see that one. <laughs> well, you know, there's so many things that we depend on. Barbara Liskoff, who, you know, at MIT, we, we use so much of her, of her technology on everyday basis. Dame Wendy Hall, who really built the first working web, right, um, a few years before or Tim Berners-Lee did. And there are people we depend on every single day that we don't talk about them as women in, right? Yeah. We just say, well, I'm using Liskoff lists. I'm, I'm using a, a laptop, you know, I'm, I'm working on the on the web. So there's a lot of this. I think it kind of may flip around. Like you're you're a woman in, you're, you're a binary in, you're a whatever in. And then for a while, then we stop talking about it. But then I think we start talking about it again. So I don't, I don't really know. And all I know is that it's definitely a bigger thing to you know to talk about now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I think what it comes down to is there is mathematical, there are numbers that prove that having a diverse team makes it better because oh, it comes yeah. down to tech is now inherently personal. That's what's changed. The tech has changed that it's in our bodies. It's in our pockets, in our homes. For people that listen to podcasts, I say this all the time because it's creepy. Tech is creepy and it's in our lives. So it's become more urgent that 
we need to consider everyone because what's we don't know, especially with AI, what's going to be the next thing that's going to scale to the size of Facebook. And we interviewed Jessica Rose recently and it's the first time someone said, and I was like, oh shit, we're <laughs> calling people users, but they're not, that implies consent. And when we're talking about, I learned from Coded Bias, which I highly recommend on Netflix because it talks to everyone, which is awesome. Six million CCTV cameras in the UK. Yeah. We're not consenting to that. We're existing to that. And right. things are, decisions are being made on behalf of people. So it has to come down to, we need that diversity because it will lead to abuse. It will lead to misuse, to harming people, whether we have intended use cases or not. So I think that is the story mixed with that tech is toxic for a lot of people marginalized by the tech community. So yeah, and you know, you can't get that diversity on teams because they. I, I, but I think that's the, a. Oh, sorry. Go, Mike. Go ahead. You go ahead, Lorinda. Go. You go ahead. I was going to say I think the toxicity is a bit circular, right? I think that the more we talk about how toxic it is, the more we make it toxic. That, in my opinion, like the, this is a very controversial thing to say. I think, but I think you know, I feel for a lot of the men I work with who are kind, and Mike is one of these people, very kind and caring and considerate, wants to do the right thing. They're they're they don't know where the where the landmines are. And so they are not bringing themselves anymore. None of us are bringing ourselves anymore. And because we're all worried about the toxicity and that honestly, like I say this a lot to the organizations that I manage that the most important thing about an environment at work is psychological safety. Because if you're psychologically safe, your brain isn't like part of your brain isn't spent with worrying about everything all the time. Like you, you can think about how to solve the problems that are in front of you because you're not worried about all the other things. And I think we, in our effort to make environments safe, we also often misstep and make them more unsafe because we're all so afraid of just being people with each other. And we've forgotten how to just hear with forgiveness, right? And hear with patience. And I think this is part of what I think is the problem with why we don't have as many women. I mean, I can't speak to other demographics. I can only speak to my own experience, right? Which is being a female in tech. But I think that the more we talk about, and this is part of what the talk that Mike was referring to earlier, part of what I talk about in that talk is the more we talk about how toxic it is, the more toxic it is, <laughs> right? Because then women feel like, nah, I don't want to go. And they're listening. They're listening for that accusation or condescension. And, it, and I think everybody's trying to be so careful that we can't get our freaking work done. We got code to build. right? <laughs> I, I definitely, that resonates with me. And we talked about this, you know, when, when you were first, first talking about it. I think one of the things that's happened from my point of view is a lot of this has to do with perception or, or improving or changing my point of view or my perception from me. I'm just talking about me now. One of the things that I've discovered, I think, over the years, you're talking, Jennifer, about the idea of cameras, video cameras and AI and all these other things. One of the things is we're getting more and more inputs, more and more data, more and more information. And one of the things that happens is we can tell a story with that data just about any way we want. I think Edward Tuft had the line, if you torture big data long enough, it'll tell you exactly what you want to know. 
and I Very and I nice. think there's a I think there's a lot of this going on in tech in general. And I think this kind of flows to Lorinda's by talking about how toxic it is. Toxic it is. It becomes more toxic, and that is that's the story we start to tell when we tell the stories of people and tell the stories of accomplishment, and we tell the stories of experiment, and we tell the stories of exploration and discovery. That resonates with people. Right. Um, now we can tell that story as a struggle, as a as a heroic struggle, an epic battle, or we can tell that story as a, a story of discovery and wonderment, right? And how yeah. we choose to tell these stories is super, super important. And I think this is one of the things that happened to me was I realized that the way I tell a story, the the points uh, that I pick along the trail attract a different audience. I can tell a story differently. And I resonate with a different group of people. Now, suddenly, I have the ability to pay attention to who is listening. Wow, I can, I can pay attention to the people who are listening to me. I'm so much of a talker, as you can tell from all this nonsense, that I sometimes forget to pay attention to who is listening. And yeah. uh, I think that's a big part of it. And I think this falls to this notion of, of making sure that I don't tell a toxic story, even if I'm preaching, I don't have to tell a toxic story. I can tell a positive story. And I think that's a thing that I have become much more aware of. I don't know if that rings true with anybody here. That's worked for me. Yeah. One thing I've... you spoke about is about audience. And mm. since I, at least I know y'all from the API community. I also am known for saying never use the word API, application programming interface, because it <laughs> sounds overwhelming to those of us Luddites out there. How has storytelling become part of the API community? How has bridging that divide between the business and the extremely technical now, once we're getting into APIs infrastructure, happened? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> you know, what I, what I love about what's happened with the API world, I hate, I hate to call it the API industry, but the API world in the last, Mike, how long have we been babbling about this? <laughs> like 10 years, I guess. Yes, you know, at least, at least, yeah. We used to get on stage and say, let me tell you about this thing called APIs. And let me explain why you should care. And then you get into, you know, you definitely have the people who go deep into the, like, they immediately start talking about HTTP and, you know, various protocols and like, you know, description formats and, and what people get or, or originally in our early days would forget to talk about is, you know, you use an API every day, like every day you do your mother does, your grandfather does, your little niece and nephews do, like literally we are all interacting with APIs all the time. And what I think has is really fun about the stories we tell now versus the stories we told then is then we would tell stories from a technical perspective. Here's how you build them. Here's how you design them. Here's why you should think about adding an endpoint to that feature you just built so that you can expose it to, yeah, you know, another development team inside your organization. Like we had different conversations. The stories we told them were different. Now we're telling stories about, you know, you're looking for a restaurant and you first you want to look at all the reviews. Then you want to look at a map. Then you want to actually make a reservation. You have just used a dozen APIs. And so this isn't, this isn't hidden tech. It's not secret, complicated tech. It's your everyday life. This is literally everyday software and it's, it powers everything on your smartphone. And so like now we tell stories that are much more, I think, 
democratized. It's there for everybody. And I think when you tell the stories that way, everybody gets it. You know, I remember having to explain to my 83-year-old mother what I do <laughs> for a living. And I that's what I said to her. I said, you know how you posted a picture to Facebook this morning? She's like, yeah. I said, you were using an API. You literally do that all the time. And so like that to me, I love the fact that our stories have become so real and so personal and so visceral and so every day and everybody can grok it. And we're not telling the stories from just a pure tech implementation perspective. So it's gone from technical stories to user stories. Yeah. To everyday stories. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, th- I think, I think one of the one of the things that happened to me, and this was about the time that Lorinda and I first met, was I remember having discussions with a few other people. Lorinda's Kin Lane, it was a few other people saying, I'm just so frustrated. I was saying, I'm just so frustrated. I'm talking about all this technical jargon, and I'm not sure that I'm getting through, and I'm not sure that it's making a difference. And and I think I'm getting lost. And I think it was Kin. There other, other people started saying, just well, just start telling stories. We started thinking about the way the brain works and the way stories are important. And I literally just kind of like threw everything away. I'd been working in the industry for more than 10 years and sort of had this whole idea about what I was doing. I basically threw it out and started thinking about, well, what about stories? I mean, uh, I was reading Joseph Campbell and the storytelling and all these other brain things, trying to figure out how do we make connections and started actually just inventing stories. Actually, at one one event, I think it might have been at Glue, I told a fairy tale. I literally invented a fairy tale that occasionally had a slide about tech in it. And I think I didn't get invited back to the conference for like two or three years. I just, I, like, this is just, I just went totally overboard. But I learned so much in the process. And I think I, one of the things I have noticed, as Lorinda has pointed out, is we've changed sort of the pivot or the, the fulcrum point of what we talk about. We tend to talk, I notice, talking less about a particular technology and more about that technology's application, more about the thing it does or the people it affects or the, the system it changes. And, and I think that's a, that's a, to me, I think it's a maturity. Talking more about the people it affects, talking more about the way it interacts with other things is a maturity that is positive. Because now I, I tend to think more about how my, what I'm doing affects others affects other parts of the technical system, affects other people. And I think that's a, that's a positive. So I think the storytelling has, has definitely changed over time. And it makes me think, well, how will the storytelling change in another 10 years? Yeah. Will, it, will it revert? Will it, is it cyclical? Or is there another horizon? I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm very curious about that right now. Robots. And I... Robots will tell the Robots. stories. Oh, God. But I, I do think that like, I just want to, yes, I agree with you, it's maturity, but I also think we told the stories that were important at the time. We still mm-hmm. are, right? So yeah. when we were telling, when we, when this API world was brand new and people, there were lots of companies that didn't have APIs, right? And mm-hmm. that's very rare now that there isn't, you know, some level of API uh, work being done, but there were lots of people who weren't doing it and didn't know why they should do it. And so we told the stories we needed to tell to convince the tech industry to move in that direction. Now that that's happened, we tell the stories we need to tell to get the business people to understand 
the power that having mm-hmm. these APIs can give you. It's mm-hmm. not just making money, it's mm-hmm. tech for good, right? And it's yeah. and it expands your world. I can think of nothing, and I, like we've already established, I've been doing this a damn long time. I can think of, of nothing that has happened that is more powerful in the software industry than the adoption of APIs. Nothing that has opened up software, made it faster, made it easier, made partnerships easier, made it more democratized so that every developer can build something using an API. Like I, nothing has changed or been so powerful, I think, as that. You know, you, you mentioned that. And I think back on what it took for me to, to learn how to program when I started and what it took to, to contribute to a program, to contribute to mainframes and minis and all these other things to actually be able to finish a job or complete a task and do the work, and the barrier of entry for all this kinds of stuff and how that's changed. And, and it, I really think you're, you're right. The barrier of entry is definitely lower to me. I have access to so much more and I need, there are so many gatekeepers that are, that are, that are out of the way. There are still problems, there's still gatekeeping, but it's so different than when I started. And, and that I think is definitely a positive. I think it's a little bit like running with scissors. It's like, there's an awful lot of people that are, <laughs> that now it's easy for them to uh, make a mistake. It's easy for them to hurt themselves and others, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. But I think overall, you're, you're really right in terms of the overall impact and the change that we've seen is actually pretty amazing. I didn't say it was all good power. I didn't say <laughs> no, what kind yeah, no, of power no. it was. I just yeah. said it was power. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Cool. I think, yeah, you, you've kind of answered some uh, some of the questions I, I was going to ask anyway, quite, quite nicely, which is good. But I wanted to um, sort of go on to ask you about balancing kind of, so I, I was looking at some of your blog posts, uh, Mike, about how you sort of talk about new technologies in terms of problems and solutions. How do you sort of balance that in terms, because I, I suppose part of innovation is, yes, posing solutions, but part of innovation is also uncovering new problems as well. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you get the balance of that and sort of maybe how that's changed as well over the last decade or two. Yeah, I, I can say that you've definitely you've definitely touched on a, a sort of a, a thread that runs through a lot of what I write about, which is I tend to focus an awful lot on the problem space and and not so much on the solution space because it fascinates me so much. Um, the space in which we operate, the, the problems that we're presented with, or the way you frame a problem, I think is super, super powerful. And I think APIs have helped us think about reframing things in a very different sort of way. So I think a lot about if you can frame the problem in a new way, you, if you can create a space where people can explore their own problems, you're actually creating some very powerful solutions. Uh, I often use the phrase, a lot of what I work on is creating a space where people can solve problems I've never thought of, and there are people I've never met. Frameworks and all sorts of APIs have to do with this notion of, you know, I want to be able to connect. I don't know who I'm going to connect to, and I'm not sure what they're going to use this service for, whether it's a search service or a payment service or a delivery service or anything, but I want to be able to be there for somebody when they need it. So I think thinking about things in terms of challenges, I say challenges oftentimes, or the problem space is is really, really powerful. And it's easier, I think, than ever to do that. So a lot of the technology I work on is really more about describing problems rather than describing solutions. And that can be a bit of a challenge. But to me, that's the, that's the amazing part of the work. And I think 
if I think back on what I thought computing was about all these decades earlier, none of us really want to say how like 40 years ago when I was doing this, I thought it was about possibility. I was just fascinated by what would be possible. And I think a lot of what's happened in the last couple of decades is thinking a lot about what's profitable or thinking a lot about solving a particular problem or designing to solve a problem. I still tend to think more about what's possible. And often I find people tell me, nobody's going to want to do that. Why do you think about it that way? That usually tells me I'm onto some fun stuff. So I continue to think about it as possibility more than anything else. Yeah, I think I think um, one of my favorite things, and happily, uh, every company I've worked for in the last many years has had this kind of framework, is innovation weeks or innovation sprints, where like you just release release the kraken, right? Just tell tell all the developers you are no longer beholden to your to your backlog or your product manager. Like, go be free, you know, spend the week doing whatever makes you happy, and or spend the next sprint. It depends on how long you want to allocate time. But watching what people come back with, as you said, you know, Mike, it's like the possibilities are endless, and certainly we have a million problem statements that we all carry around in our heads, and having the freedom to figure out how to solve them is really great. And, and it does release you from that building profitable things all the time. Yeah. I, I tend to ask questions a lot. I ask, what if, you know, what if we were able to do this already? What would that be like? One of the things Alan Kay talks about, and Alan Kay is the, the guy who helped us sort of think of what the laptop would be and, and you know, these things that, uh, that we're, we use every day. But he said when he was writing grants for government grants, he said what he would do is he would project out, say, maybe 30 years, 20, 30 years into the future as to what, what would be possible. So he would start from that location and he was, he was so, uh, was so cute. He would say, you can't project out five or 10 years because people will argue with you. But if you project out 20 to 30 years, people stop arguing and they just think you're being creative. And then he said, you backfill, what, what would it take to get there? So imagine a place when there's a computer that's so small, this is when they're the size of rooms, so small that it sits on your lap. What would it take to get there? And then he would sort of map a path. Well, you'd have to shrink these things and you'd have to have these kinds of things. And suddenly these all become problems to solve. These all become part of this space. So often I do that. I say, what if I didn't have to write code and things would automatically happen? What if bots, to use Jennifer's line, what if what if robots could actually solve this part of the problem for me, freeing us up to just think about the creative part? What if these could happen in real time? So you just sort of think about those things and then see how far along you can get with the current things. What Often we have so much technology at our disposal. If we just rearrange the, the Legos in a certain way, we would, we would actually be really close to that solution. So, so I, think, I think that's easier than ever to, to uh, lean on Lorinda's comment, easier than ever now before. We have more Legos at our disposal than I think we've ever had. I, I have to just tell a, like just a related story. So if you're ever thinking, anybody who's listening to this, if you're ever thinking about going on the conference circuit, here's, here's the fun part about the conference circuit. You're reminding me, Mike, of the night after... We'd all done our talks and I don't even remember what city we were in, to be really <laughs> honest. I don't even know what conference this was, but I remember sitting in a restaurant till late, late, maybe early in the morning with you and Ken and yeah. a couple of other people. And we were designing autonomous truck routes to deliver goods yeah. faster to rural yeah. areas. Like, how do we get, how do we get, yeah. 
how do we get food to food deserts? And we were designing yeah. this entire, we literally don't know anything about the trucking industry, but no. we were all designing this thing that would like yeah. be totally based on APIs and it would use autonomous trucks to deliver things and meet up with other trucks along the way. Anyway, it was, it was yeah. a, but it was one of those what ifs. I think we've spent hours. This is how people unwind after the pressure of conferences, <laughs> like just Some hours people, over wine coming up with like, yes. you know, and then we could do this and just designing oh, yeah. random systems. But the whole time you were talking, I was remembering that night and how it didn't yeah. seem ludicrous until you look back on it and you go, <laughs> what do right. we know about the <laughs> trucking industry? What are we talking right. about? <laughs> I, I try not to let, in cases like this, I try not to let reality intrude. Exactly. <laughs> just keep, it's what keep I love going. about you. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 my that's my brand right there. <laughs> so when I described you both to Rich, I described you as the kind of the godparents of the API community with Kin, of course, with Kin Lane. Yeah. Uh, you could put Martin Fowler in there as a impetus and a describer, oh, yeah. but not. Not not someone you see on the circuits ever really anymore and things like that. But you three have a very specific role in this building this future of APIs and explaining what the hell it is to us others. And it's just very interesting because you have so much in common. The two of you will just focus on you two right now. Uh, but you do very different jobs. And both of your jobs are API storytellers. They're just very yeah. different. Mike, you're basically, I would call you a consultant in yep. the API space. And then Lorinda, you are a VP of engineering. How did you both end up in these paths? Because you both have very similar interests, very similar, at least on the storytelling side, capability of accessibility of the story of APIs. How did you get where you are? I'll answer because it's a really short answer. It's it says right on my right in my employee file does not work and play well with others. I have such a <laughs> challenge in groups that it really it it's best for me to work as you mentioned as this sort of outside as this strategist as this external force as this disruptor. I'm I'm the grid of sand in the oyster that will create the pearl maybe, but the work, the actual real work I'm not, I'm not so good at. And that's my story. That's, that's how I ended up, I think, being where I am. It's just not good for me to be in a large group. I cause too much trouble. I don't know what Lorinda wants to say, but that's me. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I've just been having a career, you know, I've just sort of been rolling along having a career and, and, uh, and that I started managing folks in the tech, like a variety of tech functions, you know, many decades ago. And so I don't know. I was just rolling right along. I think I ended up telling API stories because it was relevant to the work I was doing. And I still tell them because it's still relevant to the work that I'm doing more and more and more like every day. It used to be a golden moment when you got a chance to work on an API. Now it's like, this is what I do. This is just what it is. And I think because I'm, this is my work anyway, it's even more imperative to tell the stories and make sure that we're all based in reality. So like there was a period of time when we were, we were all giving everybody such concrete guidance. We'd get up on stage and say, here's the following things you have to do. If you're designing an API, you have to do these 10 things. And we were so emphatic, but you know, really 
those 10 things don't get done in most companies. And so like the, there's a reality to it. And I think I've shifted as APIs have become more adopted and more commonplace. I've shifted my storytelling to be much more reality-based and say, I know this thing doesn't get prioritized on your backlog. I know that. So let's talk about what you can do and how we can accomplish things in a reality base. I think I've, I've changed my storytelling to adapt to what I live and breathe every day. But for me, if I weren't living and breathing it every day, I'm not sure I could tell relevant stories. Just a really quick sort of question on that. And um, kind of for both of you, like when, when this sort of community was taking shape, did you sort of have a sense of how ubiquitous it would become? Did you know that it had to kind of become ubiquitous? Or do you think a lot of things have had to fall in place for that to happen? I think we hoped. I think we that was our goal, right? I think we were hoping it would become ubiquitous. I think we saw, at least I shouldn't say we, I, I should say me, right? I'll let you speak for yourself, Mike. But I think I, I saw that that was a possibility and that it would be really powerful if it happened. But at the time, like we were still in the API description wars where there were a million different ways to describe APIs and nobody could decide and it was all very contentious. And like, we didn't know how to make them available and ubiquitous. We didn't know how to do it. We, we struggled with that. And I think um, there were times when I thought, we're not making things better right now. We're just making things noisier. And so I think, and we have said this to each other, you know, those of us who've been doing this for a long time, we have sat down and said, it's pretty amazing. Look what's happened. I remember having that conversation with Ken where we were like, there was a moment where you go, what do we do now? Do people <laughs> still need us <laughs> like to say these words? Like, are we still, or have we done the thing? Like, and I have, you know, I, I don't get up on stage as often anymore because I feel like we we shoved something forward and it went and now it's going. And now there are other people who are leading the way and having strong voices and doing the things. And it's really rewarding to know we were at the early stages of this, but so Rich, there's a really long way to answer your question. I think we hoped it would happen. I'm not surprised that it really did happen because I think we all saw the, the possibilities. So it's really rewarding that it that it has taken off. And I'm incredibly flattered that Jennifer thinks I'm one of the godparents of this industry, because I feel like I've just been sort of wandering aimlessly around. I like these people. So if they're going to a conference, I'm going to it, you know, but I'm, I'm happy to think that I was part of that. It's not just yeah, well, of the industry, it's of the community too. Y'all care. And that is different. The API community feels like a special niche. Just like tech writers community, the API tech yeah. documentation writers community also feels like a special niche that really care for each other. So it's cool to see. And that comes from the founders of it. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I agree with Lorinda completely in that, you know, there was a lot of hope in this involved. I have this sort of thing in my head about inevitability. We are going to get make this easier. It is inevitable that pe more people want to be able to use technology, want to be able to connect to things, want to make it easier, and that that barrier will need to be lower. So I tend to think of it as not so much about if, but when and how. And that's sort of what, what's always driven me. We are going to be having using lots more APIs. They may not look the way I think they should look. They may not act the way I think they're going to act. We may not take the same journey that I imagine, but we're going to be there. It, this, it's, this, is, this is a march that's inevitable. So I tend to think of these things, when, we, when I think back about 10 years ago, my frustration 
when I was talking about how I'm like, I'm getting bogged down and I'm not doing this right. My frustration was, was born mostly out of, I think I'm missing the plot. I think I'm not connecting. I think I'm, I'm not seeing what's going on. And I think I'm not successful at helping people take a step or get to the next step. I also think very much the way Lorinda was talking about, you know, it, I never thought about, well, I want to be a, uh, I want to be a godfather. I want to be a guru. I want to be, I never thought about it in that way. Sure. I'm a ham. I'm a clown. I, I do this kind of stuff. So some of this is inevitable, but that wasn't conscious. What was conscious was how can I drag people along? How can I get someone else excited? How can I get others to do this? And I definitely notice that we're getting closer to some of the things I imagined and we're getting there in ways I never thought. So that is very encouraging to me because that means there are other very creative people solving problems I imagine would need to be solved. And they're doing it in, you know, so many different ways that I, that's very, very encouraging and rewarding. It's a little bit, it sounds odd to be talking about it this way, but it's a little bit like, you know, I can go onto my rocking chair on the porch and I can watch the parade and I can say, yeah, it's good to see you. You know, I'm the veteran, you know, of, of something, but I do feel in the sense that there are so many aspects of, of, of tech whether it's APIs or just connection in general or AI or ML or whatever it is, there's so many aspects of tech that have progressed, have changed. And I'm happy to have, you know, been able to be, see part of that change and notice it. And, and I'm so happy that there are other people who are excited enough to keep, you know, working at it. So that's kind of my, my version of, of that story. I, I really think we, we gave it all a shove, but yeah. it's, 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 it's doing its own thing, which is great. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, things do not, things work out, but not always as I, as I planned. For the sort of final sort of section of the episode, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about more about like content and the information ecosystem. So Mike, you're an author, and I kind of wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier with problems and solutions. And I wanted to ask you what you sort of think the value of books is in this kind of very digital environment. I sort of wonder, as you were sort of talking about problems, if books are a, a kind of good place to pose problems rather than sort of offer solutions. I was, yeah, I just wanted to kind of get your take on that. Yeah. So, so I've got a couple of challenges. I am a book person. I think in terms of these long stories and drawn out challenges and problems and laying it out and then working the details and getting to somewhere. And I'm finding it really challenging. A lot of the people that I talk with, a lot of the people who I would think are the audience that I'm trying to reach are not such book people as, as I am, right? So I have challenges trying to, trying to figure out how best to frame what I'm doing. I, I'm sort of an, an incorrigible author, inveterate author. I don't know how you would really say it. I just keep doing it over and over again. I think books are important because I think they're part of storytelling. And in fact, in the last several books I've worked on, I've tried to be think of it more as storytelling rather than even rather than instruction. The last book I worked on is very much aimed at helping people figure out how to create APIs and design them and build them and use them and connect them. But I approached it not so much as a as sort of an instructor or a tutorial or a polemic as much as a, a story, an adventure, a, a, a thing you do. So I think books are, are super important, but I'm finding that it's very challenging for me to write in a way that reaches the audiences I'm aiming for. I don't know if that's vague. That's really vague, but I have to work harder and harder to say less, to say more in a less 
in, in less time. One of the challenges that just hit me over and over again that I keep failing at is uh, this sort of online video writing where, you know, you have like a three or five or seven minute piece that teaches you one thing and you string them together into a, a, a really positive experience. I can't do that. I stink at that. I've failed at that a couple of times. And that's a bother to me because I think I could reach a different audience if I was better at that, but I can't. So I continue to, to think that books are super important and recently have been focusing more and more on general problem space, general challenges rather than specific solutions. I, the first books I wrote were very, very specific. Database programming with VB4, you know, like it was a very, very direct line. But that was a long time ago. That was 20 years ago. And now I talk about things. The, the book I'm working on is RESTful Web Microservices. You know, if I could throw blockchain in, I would. <laughs> it's, a, it's a buzz It's a buzz pile, right? So it's just super like, what does that mean? But it's an opportunity to talk about a lot of things. So I think books are important, and but I they're just one of a stream for me. Do your customers or your clients, your enterprise clients, are they okay mm -hmm. with that you bring more problems than answers? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a really that's a really good question. <laughs> In general, you know, the short answer is yes, they're okay with it. The long answer is not always. But it turns out because I've focused on recognizing challenges and problems and documenting them in, in ways. Uh, it turns out when when I helicopter in to a customer, like if I show up at a customer that I've never seen before, often I recognize things. Oh, you have you have this problem. You have this challenge. You have these these sets of things that you're trying to pull off, and I can offer a sort of a reference point. I say, well, this company solved it this way and that company solved it that way. A lot of times I say what my real job is, is to actually recognize what's already happened and connect pieces, bring these pieces together. So I think in a lot of ways, it turns out my ability or my proclivity for paying attention to challenges and problems has turned out to be pretty handy. Lorinda, I kind of wanted to throw a sort of similar question to you, but more in the context of, I guess, sort of leading teams and helping teams sort of evolve and adapt to new situations. Like, how do you, how do you sort of help them evolve, I guess, around the needs of what the organization is or what kind of challenges you have technically? But how, how does that sort of happen? Do you kind of, do you like to kind of set an agenda for them? Do you sort of support them with the kind of resources? Like, how do you go about that? So I don't, I'm definitely like opinionated about how organizations should be shaped and how we should design software and, and, you know, engineering rigor and that kind of stuff. But I don't think it's effective to come in and say, here's what we're going to do. Right. So the way I like to lead is to, is to guide people. And so I, I spend a lot of time listening first. So I'm, you know, whenever I join a new org or take on a new org, I, I spend a lot of time listening. I tend to be one of those people that people like to talk to. So sometimes I, I'm in listen mode all day and it can be very exhausting, but I also like to just kind of guide people into thinking the situation through. So to Mike's point, a lot of, a lot of the work is pointing out the problem statement. Hey, here's a here's an area where we're not being very efficient, you know, or where the organization design isn't really working. Let's talk about that. So here's what I observe. Here's some of the problems that are offshoots of this situation. And then throw it to them. How would you solve this? And let them come to a place where they've figured out what to do next. 
and I may guide them, you know, like, well, let's think about this part a little bit more, you know, let's, let's kind of steer a little bit more in this direction. But for me to come in and just kind of, you know, lay down the law and I do warn people, especially like I just joined this organization and, and um, they're on an open API journey. They're, they're starting to build a lot of open API interfaces and standardize on that across the board. And of course, I have opinions as somebody who's been involved in OpenAPI since before it was born. I have definite opinions about it all. And I tell them, you can know by looking at my background that I have thoughts about this, but my thoughts don't matter. Unless you ask me, I will tell you, but I'm not going to come in and say, you must do this or you must do that. If open API isn't the thing that works for you, I am not going to shove it down your throat, right? So, but if it does work for you and you want some help, I'm here, right? So I try to pick the things that I'm, that I really feel I need to be forceful about. And then there are other things that I like to let an organization find its way. I mostly am like pointing, I'm like the little, you're on a trail and you see the little brown signs that say, this way is five miles, that way is a quarter mile, like I'm that person. So I'm just sort of generally pointing in directions going, we can take this route if you want, it's five miles uphill, or we can take this route. So I try to be a little gentle about some of what I do from an organization standpoint, because I really want the people who have to, I say this to my teams all the time, you do this every single day. I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for outcomes, but you're the ones who have to actually wake up in the morning and do this work. So you should figure out how it works for you, knowing what the outcome is we're trying to get to. And so I try not to like dictate ways for them to work that I'm not going to do myself. I'm, I'm sort of conscious of time and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but a good place to kind of end the episode would be just to kind of get you guys to talk a little bit about kind of what you're like excited for, for over the next 12 months or so, like anything you're working on, anything that's inspiring or exciting you really, yeah. Well, I, I will, you know, what's really on my, top of mind right now for me is how I'm thinking about sort of the next step in this sort of API story that we've been talking about. Lauren and I have been talking about, you know, when we started, you explained to people what an API was. Now it seems that pe people have lots of APIs. What's really exciting me right now and what I'll be focusing on for the next year or so is, is making connecting APIs easier, making uh, using an API that you haven't created easier and safer and more efficient and maybe even more profitable. There was a concept in the 80s called other people's money, like how you could make money with other people's money. You would get them to invest and then you would turn that into something. That became, you know, the way Silicon Valley works. I want to talk about other people's APIs. Like how can I learn from other people? How can I enlist other APIs and do it in this sort of super efficient and effective way? So I think that's the next, I mentioned this inevitability. I think that's in, it's inevitable that that will change the way we think about things like orchestration and connections and workflow. So I'm very excited to be focusing on the next, I think the next big revolution in APIs are not just using yours, but using everybody else's and doing it successfully. So that's, that's what I'll be working on for the next year or so. I, I'm excited about what Mike just said, because I think I'm going to invite him to come talk to my engineering teams. So uh, like I said, I just, um, I just joined Better Cloud and I'm, I'm actually really excited because they are, I have a really great engineering team. 
they are on a journey that I'm really excited about. One of the reasons I went there was because we are opening up more APIs. We're going to create a much bigger API presence. We just joined the um, Open API initiative as a member company. We're going to be really moving hard in that direction. And of course, that combines two of the things I love the most, one of which is leading engineering teams and the other is APIs. So it's sort of the perfect scenario for me. I'm also excited because I have had my second vaccine shot and any minute now I'm going to go to a real restaurant and eat outside of my house, which I'm thrilled about. And Glue is coming. I live in the same town that Glue uh, yeah. happens in and it's going to be in person. And so I'm really excited about that too. I just want to see some people. So that's my most <laughs> exciting thing that's coming up. <laughs> Not just see them, but actually physically in the same physically, location, right? Yes, physically be in the That's same it. place as them. Remember how tall they all are and we're all the same height on Zoom. <laughs> very cool, very cool. A lot of people have said that when we've asked them this. So yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. Before before I kind of properly wrap up, could you sort of both let people know if you've got anything to plug or where can people find you online as well on Twitter or wherever else? Yeah, I'm Lindy Brandon on Twitter. I talk about every random thing on earth. So if you think you're coming just for tech, I also post pictures of my son's new calves. He's got a farm. And so I, I talk about just about anything, bread, you name it. And I am going to be keynoting at Glue. So, you know, if you're if you feel like coming to Colorado in the fall, I will be on stage there. I, and that's that's about it probably for me. Very cool. Listen, I would, I, I don't know if Lindy wants me to do this, but I highly recommend Lindy's Instagram feed for her Sunday brunch. We've, we've had, that's a, there's a whole story there and uh, we'll maybe do it at another time, but I definitely, you want to connect with Lin, Lorinda. I'm a Mammond, M-A-M-U-N-D uh, on all sorts of platforms. So on, on Twitter and LinkedIn and GitHub and YouTube. And I, I'd love to connect with people because I'm always interested in what's challenging. I'd love to hear what, what's challenging for, for everyone. That's how I learn. And then I can, I can share. And I'm, I'm also looking forward, I think, to real life. I have to tell you, as someone who used to travel 35, 40 weeks a year, I've gotten very, very comfortable with staying at home. And I'm not sure how I'm going to handle things when it's suddenly time to start meeting up again. There are definitely people I want to be in the same room with, most of which are on this channel right now, but who knows what the future holds. So it should be interesting. It, I already have my second shot. I'm 100%. I have no excuses, except that I'm just enjoying what I'm doing right now. So we'll see. I know we're running over, Rich, but I have to say this about Mike. Mike is the scrappiest traveler you've ever met. Like, I, I am so intimidated by Mike when we travel together, because I am all about get a hired car, know where you're going, have a reservation. Like I'm all about that. Like, especially if we're in a foreign country, Mike is like, he's got a backpack that has every possible emergency thing, including, you know, little rain ponchos that fold up into micro <laughs> little fragments <laughs> and, and he knows the bus schedule everywhere. And so he's just like, you know, I'll take a bus and I've got my rain poncho and I can always walk. And, you know, like there's some <laughs> vegan restaurant, uh, you know, out three towns out of Right. the city and we're all gonna go jump on a bus and go there and i'm like uh i have a reservation at the hilton and like i'm like i, I know i know travelers, but i i love going with him because i feel adventurous <laughs> i know the exact story that lorinda is channeling right now 
And we'll have another discussion about that in some other time. When oh, I decided to take the bus when everybody else wanted to take a cab. We were like, I'm just really? a scrappy guy. <laughs> scrappy actually movie. means, it translates into the uh, an English word called stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, could, we could talk about that later. But much I, smarter than us. We waited an hour for a taxi. Mike is like, yeah, I got the bus. <laughs> I'm out of here. It's great. I think it will be great to review post-pandemic how y'all actually have changed the way you travel. Yeah. Maybe yeah. very different. <laughs> That's very good. Very good. If we remember how. I'm sure yeah. there were masks in his backpack. Yes. There were for years. <laughs> I'll tell you that oh, now. Oh, damn. Transcending. Yes. Again. No. Yes. For, for various reasons. But we'll get into that again some other time. Thank you both so much, Lorinda and Mike. Thanks for joining us. It's been great. It's been really, really interesting. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. I've had a great time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. So that's just about all we've got time for on this week's episode. Once again, thank you to Lorinda and Mike for taking the time to talk to us. We really enjoyed the conversation. We covered so many different topics. We learned so much. Um, So yeah, thank you again for being part of this. And once again, thank you as well for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to check out our earlier episodes on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter. Our podcast handle is at underscore talkabouttech. As I said at the start, you can follow me on Twitter at Rich G. Gall and you can follow Jennifer on Twitter at JK Riggins. So yeah, we'll be back next time with another guest. But until then, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.